You don't know, I'm Doug Reeside. I'm one of the elders uh, at the church, and uh, Dick is on vacation uh, this week and next, so um, today I will be speaking. And we're picking up actually in the book of Acts, um, which we've been studying kind of off and on for, I think, just about a year now. We took a quick break um, at the beginning of the pandemic, but uh, we're coming back to it now. And this is the third section of the book of Acts. So um, many commentators will uh, divide the book of Acts into three separate sections, uh, three acts, if you will, um, that uh, correspond to uh, Jesus's command at the beginning of the book of Acts, where he tells the disciples to take the gospel uh, to throughout Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. So in the first section, we saw the kingdom of God grow from a tiny little group of people who knew Jesus and saw him as the risen Christ to a a larger group that was meeting in a corner of the temple um, to a uh, a scattered church, as we heard in um, the last couple of Sundays, that scattered out into Samaria and um, other sections of the the Jewish, uh, the Hebrew speaking and Greek speaking uh, Jewish uh, area. Um, And now uh, in this third section, we see the gospel begin to go to the entire world. The narrative of Acts so far has mostly followed um, the character of Peter. Uh, Peter is the one on whom Jesus said he would build his church. But starting in Acts 13, the narrative shifts to Saul. Um, and, uh, And it doesn't really look back. The Jerusalem church and the story of the 12 apostles begins to recede into the background except as an occasional setting for Paul's teaching. So we're really focused on Paul and we're going along with him and sort of leaving the apostles in Jerusalem behind. This is the part where the gospel that started in Jerusalem is taken by Saul, who is a Roman Greek-speaking Jew from Tarsus, and he takes it to the ends of the earth as Jesus commanded. But since today's uh, story really begins to focus on Saul, or Saul, also called Paul, it's maybe worth taking just a quick uh, moment to look back at what we've learned about Paul so far. The the story of uh, Paul is actually a little bit confusing if you're just reading through the book of Acts, because the narrative in the first 13 chapters or so keeps switching. The the scene keeps focusing for a minute on Peter or on Paul or on Philip. Um, And so we've gotten the story of of Paul or Saul in little fragments uh, thus far. When we first meet him in Acts 8, uh, he's, uh, he's called Saul. He's kind of a strange guy. He's a Jewish Roman citizen. He speaks fluent Greek and has been trained to be a Pharisee. He's, uh, either is a Pharisee or is training to be a Pharisee by uh, Gamaliel. And uh, Gamaliel was a really important teacher uh, back in the first century. And we actually met him earlier in Acts. If you remember uh, the sort of skit that we did maybe now almost a year ago where uh, Darnell and I were, I think, Peter and John on the stage and the Pharisees were all condemning us or asking us questions. Um, the good Pharisee, Gamaliel, is the one who says, uh, if, they, um, you know, if this, this group's uh, message is from God, we won't be able to oppose it. But if it's from man, it'll just fade out, just like all the other false messiahs that have come up o- o- over the past years. Um, so, he's, so Paul has, has trained with this guy, Gamaliel, who's really respected. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, Gamaliel. Um, and he's been trying to establish himself as a respected leader in Jerusalem society. And when we first meet him, he's a young guy watching the coats so they won't get spattered by Stephen's blood as the mob stones him to death. Uh, He then starts his own extermination campaign against Christians until he has his famous conversion experience on the road to Damascus. Now, I'm going to try to share in a background, we'll see if this works, a map, um, which sometimes is helpful for me and sometimes is not to see a map, but let's see if this works. 
All right, so this is a very modern map. It's actually Google Maps. I think I can pin my video here so I can actually see what I'm doing. Okay, good. Okay, so, um, yeah, so, so, uh, so Paul uh, starts out, let's see if I can get this. So Paul starts out in Jerusalem and he's on his way up to Damascus. And Damascus is a town that's about as far north of Jerusalem as Albany is from New York City. Uh, so by car today, it'd be two or three hours, much longer on foot, certainly. And while he's walking up there, uh, Jesus calls to him uh, by his Hebrew name, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he's struck blind. And he, he finishes with his companions. His companions take him all the way back up to Damascus. Um, and uh, there he meets a guy named Ananias who baptizes him and heals his eyes. And we hear that after that, Paul basically stays in the area of Damascus. He, he goes into Arabia um, and sort of preaches around in that area for about three years. But while he's in the area of Damascus preaching, he makes his fellow Jews so angry that they try to kill him. And so his friends learn that this is going to happen and they send him to get away from the people that want to kill him back down to Jerusalem. And at first, he's greeted with understandable suspicion. Um, this is the guy that was trying to kill people. He was standing by the, the coats while Stephen got killed. Um, but uh, one of the guys that they assigned to take care of the, um, the widows the, that, uh, uh, that the apostles appointed to pass out the food or take care of the, the Greek-speaking widows is a guy named Barnabas. And Barnabas, as many of you know, his name means son of comfort or exhortation or son of encouragement. You know, he, he welcomes Saul and, and convinces the church in Jerusalem to allow uh, Saul to join him, to, to join in. And so while he's there, we hear, it, so he, he, he speaks with, uh, with Peter and with James. And then uh, Acts tells us that he starts speaking and preaching to the Greek-speaking Jews, thinking maybe that because he speaks Greek probably natively, that he might have more success with the Greek-speaking Jews, uh, where the Hebrew and Aramaic-speaking apostles weren't able to. But apparently he makes himself so obnoxious that uh, the Hellenistic Jews, who have probably already by this time had some notion of this Jesus thing that's going on in their city, um, they are so annoyed by Paul that they try to kill him. And so his friends decide that it's time for Paul to get out of town. And so they send him from Jerusalem all the way back up to Tarsus, which is where he's from, which is kind of in this, this little dot that's just in the little bit of the southern bit of Turkey right there. So meanwhile, uh, the, so as Paul goes up there, the, the Christians who had fled to Jerusalem after the stoning of Stephen, so after uh, Paul was standing by the coats, a lot of the Christians left Jerusalem and they scattered, let's see if we can get this thing again, um, and they scattered and they went all the way up north, and we heard about this last week, up to Antioch which is right here on this little, little tiny bit of Turkey that sticks down and is right next to what's modern day Syria or Aleppo is right there. So it's just this little town there at Antioch. Um, in, uh, and uh, they, they, uh, when the Christians who have fled from the persecution, persecution in Jerusalem go up there, they, uh, they start preaching the gospel and they're preaching not just to Jews, but also to Gentiles. And this is before Peter has his vision uh, where the, the animals, the pigs and stuff come down in the blankets and, the, um, the, and Cornelius becomes a Christian. So this is before the Jerusalem church has actually accepted Gentiles into their, their community. The Christians up in Antioch have already started to preach to the Gentiles. And uh, so uh, this news from this comes back uh, to, um, 
to Jerusalem, which, by the way, Jerusalem here, it's hard to tell sometimes on the scale if you're not familiar with the area, but Jerusalem is about as far from Antioch as New York City would be from Bangor, Maine, which is, you know, just on the very northeast tip of Maine. So it's a long way. But news of this comes back to the Jerusalem church, and Barnabas, who had, you know, welcomed Paul in, is interested in hearing more. So he goes up to Antioch. So Barnabas goes up to Antioch, and he's really excited by what he sees there. And then he remembers that Paul, the guy that he welcomed into the church, is just over in Tarsus, which is about the difference from uh, the distance today from Bangor to like Portland, Maine. So it's not so far. So he goes over to Tarsus and looks for him and finds him and he brings him back to Antioch. And uh, so Paul and, and Barnabas are hanging out in Antioch. We heard about this last week and the church is growing. And then uh, they, uh, they hear a prophecy that says that there's a famine coming. And Paul and Barnabas are selected by the church to go and deliver a gift to the Jerusalem church. So they're going to go all the way back down to Jerusalem. Uh, and they bring along an uncircumcised Gentile Christian named Titus. Now, Paul's a little concerned about how this is going to go. Um, you know, the, the, the Jerusalem church has only recently started accepting Gentiles in. There's this question of how Jewish the Gentiles have to be uh, after they become Christians. Um, but the Jerusalem church has, by the time they get back down there, welcomed Cornelius and the Gentile, his uh, Gentile friends into the Christian community. And they welcome back in Paul and Barnabas and affirm Titus as a Christian, just as he is. Um, Paul describes this visit a little bit defensively, though, in his letter uh, to the churches in his home re region of Galatia. And I should say, by the way, that when you hear uh, the letter to Galatia or Galatians, it's not, a, it's not a city or a town. It's this whole area of Turkey up here. So... Um, so it's the region of Galatia, which it would have been Tarsus and that kind of area. So he, he writes in, his, uh, in this letter to the people that live around his home region. I went up again, and when people say up, they mean up the mountain to Jerusalem, so not north, just I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. And I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed to be leaders, I presented to them the gospel as, that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure that I was not running and had not, that I had not run and was not running my race in vain. And yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some of the false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. But we did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who are held in high esteem, whatever they are makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted to the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work uh, in me as an apostle to the, to the Gentiles. James and Cephas and John, those esteemed pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I'd been eager to do all along. So this visit to Jerusalem seems to have gone relatively well. Paul hasn't made anyone want to kill him, and having completed their mission, Titus and Barnabas and Saul returned to Antioch, along with John Mark, who, according to tradition, was a close associate of Peter. He's the one that some people uh, think recorded the stories of Peter and put, it, put them into the Gospel of Mark. And we read last week about how the church in Antioch had decided to, after they, Paul and Barnabas got back, to set them apart for a missionary journey. Um, 
God told them to do that. So they, they lay their hands on, uh, on Saul and Barnabas and they send them on their way along with John Mark. And their first stop is in Cyprus. So they're going from Antioch over to this little island here, Cyprus, uh, which is just off the coast. And they travel from the east side of the island um, to, uh, from Salamis to Paphos, which is over here on the, the um, western side, right? Yeah, uh, the western side of the island, um, which is about a distance as long as going the full length of Long Island. So from like Montauk to Long Island City, they're traveling. And so when they finally get to um, uh, Paphos, Paul really comes into his element. I'm going to turn off the background here. Okay, so now they're on the edge of this, uh, this island uh, of Cyprus and, and the city of Paphos. And up until now, um, Acts is always called Paul by his Hebrew name, Saul. And he's actually usually listed last in a list of names. We're told that there were prophets and teachers in Antioch. We were told this last week. And they included Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, uh, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Paul tells them to set apart Barnabas and Saul. And even at the beginning of today's story, the pair are described as Barnabas and Saul. And then the story changes today. Barnabas, John Mark, and Saul, we are told, start out in the city proclaiming the word of God in Jewish synagogues. This is what they would usually do. They would go to the Jewish synagogue and uh, maybe during sharing time or whatever, they would share the, the news of Jesus. In Paphos, one of the people who hears their message is a Jewish magician named Bar-Jesus, and that literally means son of Jesus. Now, the, the Jesus here is just a common name. It's like Joshua. It's a, a name that many people would have had. Um, but I think it is an important name for this story, the son of Jesus. And he also has the name Elimus, which sounds like the Arabic word for sorcerer. And I can imagine he probably initially seemed like he might be a supporter um, of Paul and Barnabas. His name, after all, suggests that he's the son of the Messiah. And uh, the fact that he's described as a magician seems to suggest that probably he could do wondrous signs that maybe looked a little bit like miracles. So it would be easy if you're traveling through a new town to think that this guy is a person of peace in this new city who will help them to advance the gospel. And in, in fact, he sort of does. He seems to have mentioned what he learned about in synagogue over the weekend to his boss, the proconsul, who is a kind of Roman temporary governor named Servius Paulus. And Servius Paulus sends for these two visitors. And when they arrive, Bar-Jesus suddenly shows himself to be an adversary and attempts to dissuade Servius Paulus from believing what the pair are teaching. And suddenly we see Paul coming into his own. Not only is he, um, no longer is he preaching to Jewish leaders or Greeks, but to a representative of Roman power on a Greek island far from Israel. Saul, the Greek-speaking Roman citizen born far from Jerusalem, is in his element. We are told for the first time in the whole book that, Paul, that Saul has another name, Paul. It's a Latin name. It's not Greek. It's a Latin name. And he happens to share this name with the proconsul, Paulus. The NIV translates the verse, and I think actually the, the um, New King James that Chris read translates um, verse 9 as, then Saul, who was also called Paul. But the Greek here is a little more ambiguous. It literally just says, and then Saul, also Paul. In, in other places in Acts, when someone has two names, like uh, Lydia, who's also called Dorcas, or um, Barsabbas, I think, is one of the, the apostles that are appointed at the beginning of the book. Uh, 
the Luke actually uses the phrase also called. Um, there, there's a Greek word for that, and he, he uses it, but not here. And perhaps he's saying not just that Saul was also called Paul, but that like the proconsul that he's speaking to, he's also Paul. And with this new name, we see Paul start to assume an authority that goes beyond rhetoric. When he started out preaching in, in Damascus, he, we are told, baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. In Jerusalem, he talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews. But now, confronted with an oppositional Jewish man, he takes a different approach. The author of Acts, um, which we, tradition tells us is the same author as the uh, Gospel of Luke, writes that Paul looked directly at Limus. This phrase, looked directly at, looked directly at is a distinctly Luke-like phrase. It's only used 14 times in the New Testament, and 12 of those times are either in Luke or Acts. And it seems to be a moment when there is a revelation of heavenly truth happening in the person looking. Uh, Jesus looks directly at Peter when Peter denies him. Peter and John look directly at the beggar who cannot walk just before they heal him. Later, Paul, like Peter, will look directly at a man who cannot walk and discerning that he has the faith to be healed, heals him. It seems that when Luke tells us that someone looks intently at someone else, there's also divine communication happening. Paul looks directly at Bar-Jesus and hears a message, not of himself, but of God. It begins with a man's name. He is not a son of Jesus, Paul says, but a son of the devil. He then declares God's judgment. Behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Here, Paul has learned what he will later write to the church of Eph at Ephesus. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. He doesn't try to figure out a way to oppose Elimus by his own ingenuity to baffle him as he did the Jews in Jerusalem, or sorry, in Damascus, but he instead presents Elimus to God and God delivers the verdict. In the case of Bar-Jesus, God gives Paul a message that lets him announce God's judgment on Bar-Jesus with an especially persuasive sign. If you think about it, Paul's message to Sergius Paulus no doubt included his own testimony of being struck blind on the road to Damascus when he was opposing Jesus. And now the same thing has happened to Bar-Jesus. Sergius Paulus is understandably impressed and he becomes a believer. And interestingly, archeological evidence suggests that Sergius Paulus eventually returned to Rome and became a curator of rivers. Go curators. Um, Paul uh, made his own people, um, Paul who made his own people angry and found himself fiercely opposed by those of uh, the religion in which he was brought up, is now a mature missionary and situated, uniquely situated for the mission field for, to which he's been called. So what can we learn from this story? First, and I understand that this first uh, thing I'm gonna try to draw out, draw out of the text might sound a little bit like a, um, a young adult uh, fantasy novel moral, but I think, it's still, uh, I think it's still there. And I think it's worth remembering that the things that make you weird can sometimes make you uniquely qualified for mission. Don't confuse holiness or maturity with being like other Christians. So that again, don't confuse holiness or maturity with being like other Christians. We all have areas in which we need to grow, but that means growing to be more like Jesus, 
not like the standard picture of, of a Christian in your current living context. Paul doesn't seem like he was ever a popular guy. As a Pharisee, he was a guy that they asked to watch the coats while the team got down to business. As a new convert, he inspires fear and distrust in the church in Jerusalem. Um, the, as he begins to preach to the non-Christians in Jerusalem, uh, the, he becomes radioactive really to the church and uh, because of the, he angers the Hellenistic Jews so much and the Christians decide that it's time to send him home to Galatia. As most of you know, I, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, Marilyn and I went to the same small liberal arts college about four hours north of the city, and it was in a little tiny rural town called Kirksville. It was a good school, and most of the students were good students from St. Louis and Kansas City high schools who were in good grades and scored well on standardized tests. Roughly 5% of the student body attended the campus ministry that Marilyn and I were involved with, and most were involved in small groups and service ministries. And it was a time of growth in my own spiritual life and generally a pretty happy time. But I also recall feeling like I didn't ever really fit completely in. I mean, I, was, I wasn't marginalized or anything. I was a small group leader and later an intern and later still was appointed to lead, lead a Bible study for interns. So it's not like I wasn't fully welcomed into and included in the ministry, but it's just that in the Midwest, as with much of evangelical Christianity, there's a deep suspicion of intellectual pursuits for their own sake. It's not that, so doing schoolwork is praiseworthy and it's even to be expected of God's people. But for most, it's a means to an end, a stable life with a good marriage and kids, ideally lots of kids, and the ability to live a respectable life that doesn't burden anyone else in society. The churches that Marilyn and I attended in Lexington, Kentucky, were usually even more like this. I was studying medieval literature at the time and referencing a medieval poet or employing too large a vocabulary could come across as showing off. And I, I learned to try to adjust my word choice uh, and to preface any weird literary reference with self-deprecating humor. And I should emphasize that this didn't really bother me. I, I wasn't even really mostly aware that I was doing it until Marilyn and I moved to Washington, D.C. Um, after I had graduated from uh, the school in Kentucky and, and we attended our first Bible study at the church that we started attending. And as I was about to say something in the Bible study, I made some obligatory apology from, for whatever nerdery I was about to say. And I remember the Bible study leader looked at me and said, you know, you, you don't have to apologize. This is DC, we're all nerds here. And I felt a, a burden uh, lift from me that I didn't even know I was carrying. I feel like we see something like this happening for Paul in today's passage as the book of Acts shifts into this third section. Like everyone, he needed to mature and grow into the best version of himself. But that self was still quirky and a little obnoxious. Remember how he describes in Galatians, uh, the church in Jerusalem as uh, those so-called pillars. And he has a mix of a background that doesn't really fit neatly with the Greek or Hebraic Judaism. But Paul was the right person to speak to Paulus. And he was the right person to carry the gospel to the rest of the Roman world. So the second point, and I'm sure you've heard, if you've heard sermons on Acts before, you've probably heard a version of this point, but we all need a Barnabas at times. And we all also need to be a Barnabas at times. He is, as I said earlier, the, the son of encouragement or the son of exhortation. And he certainly is that for Paul. He's the first person to welcome Paul into the Jerusalem church. He goes and finds Paul in Tarsus when he sees great things that are happening in Antioch. So 
are there people in your life who others think are weird or obnoxious or even a little scary, but for whom you have a kind of special, let's just call it patience, maybe, or, or maybe affection? Make sure you're advocating for them, helping them to mature, giving them opportunities. This isn't always easy or fun. Barnabas does this so selflessly that he begins to fade into the background of what seemed to be his own narrative. Later, we find that Paul and Barnabas have such a sharp disagreement that they part ways because Barnabas wants to give John Mark a second chance after he deserts the two of them uh, soon after the today's story. We also learn that Paul uh, rebuked Barnabas for, in his eyes, wavering on his commitment that kosher laws don't matter. Whenever Peter came, and we hear the story that there's the fight between Peter and, and Paul, but we also hear that even Barnabas had sided with, with those that uh, thought that the kosher laws were still important. Being a Barnabas is messy, and it doesn't always lead to an earthly happy ending. The kingdom needs people like Barnabas's to grow. And finally, we should recognize and respond with prayerful discernment to spiritual warfare in our own eyes. This is a story um, really about spiritual warfare. It's a story about a magician who's opposing um, the kingdom of God. And this can be intimidating. Bar-Jesus was probably known as a magician for a reason. He could probably do things that seemed pretty powerful. And we've seen this trope, this, this repeating story over and over again in the Bible. Um, in Exodus, there's magicians in Pharaoh's court uh, who even were able to replicate Moses's miracle of changing a staff to a snake. But God's power is infinitely greater and Moses's snake eventually swallows the Egyptian snake. Bar-Jesus is struck, is struck blind. Don't be intimidated by spiritual warfare because ultimately it isn't your battle to fight. At the edge of the Red Sea, while Moses and the Israelites are being pursued by Pharaoh's army, the people see their approaching doom and are terrified, but Moses reminds them, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the Lord's salvation, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you, you see today, you will never see them again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. This is not to say that things always work out the way we would want them to. There are times that God's plan leads to a Roman prison or even the cross. But the incarnation means that Jesus has been there and will be there as well. And as you see the terrifying approach of the thing you most fear, you can lift the situation and the people involved up to God, and he and his perfect knowledge will deal with both mercifully and justly. Many of you know I've recently had some troubles at, struggles at work in which an individual was trying to get me fired. And a lot of my colleagues confirmed that it didn't really seem to have a lot to do with my performance or with me. Still, I wanted to prove myself until a Christian counselor I'd been seeing told me that to her what was going on sounded like spiritual warfare. Now, I'm not the kind of person who seems, sees angels and demons around every corner, but something about this felt right. And later that week, out of the blue, the pastor who used to lead the campus ministry in Missouri, where Marilyn and I met, called me to tell me that he'd been praying for me and that he too acknowledged that what I was describing sounded like spiritual warfare. He encouraged me to bring this person at work to God and let God deal with it. In our human limited perspective, we might ask God for too, uh, for too much judgment or perhaps for too much mercy. By bringing the person to God and asking him to uh, look intently as well at the person, we can be sure that the one who knows all of our hearts perfectly will act justly. 
Over the past four months, in part due to the pandemic and some staffing changes, things have shifted and the sky at work no longer has the direct ability to fire me, fire me. But the battle still continues. I think Brecht says that the difference between a comedy and a tragedy is where the, you end the story. Um, so the story is continuing. Um, but uh, I, I'm trying to remember what David said about Goliath, that the battle is the Lord's. We may be given uh, the message of judgment to deliver or five smooth stones and a slingshot, but it is God who is doing the fighting. And he knows the true state of both my heart and my colleague's heart that neither of us can see. So take a minute to think about this passage. Do you need to be like Paul in today's passage and re reframe your own self-assessment in light of Jesus's mission rather than your current context? Are there ways that you're trying to hide or tamp down a part of yourself that God created in his own image? Are there ways that you can use the unique aspects of yourself that God created to advance his kingdom? Or Maybe today God is calling you, you may be called to all of these things at different points, but maybe today God, God is calling you to be a Barnabas for someone in your life. Is there someone that you kind of enjoy seeing, even if other people find them weird or obnoxious? Is God calling you to encourage them today? Maybe they're from your past, even. Um, Remember, Barnabas uh, had not seen Paul for a long time when he saw what was happening in Antioch, and he actually went all the way over to Tarsus to go look for him. So it might, it might take some effort to obey this one. Or maybe you're in a spiritual battle today, and you're in fight or flight mode. Maybe today you're being called to do neither, and instead bring the people and the situation up to God and ask him to look intently at what is happening and act in his wisdom. Are you like the Israelites being told that you don't need to flee or fight, but only to be still? <laughs>